You'll notice in front of me here the lovely uh, Christmas trees, which will be outside, but we're going to paint them. But just so you know, we are preparing for a, a Christmas light, New Life lights here. We're going to put some lights on trees this afternoon at 1 o'clock. But just so you know, this is an opportunity also be praying about uh, just how we can share Christ this Christmas. And so I just put them up there just as a visual that, yes, Christmas is coming. I know some of you took stars too, so that's great. And so let, let's just be mindful of that in our prayers, that, that this is an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's just there, so it's a visible, visual reminder. All right. We've been talking about prayer. And uh, it's, a, it's a topic that some people find uncomfortable, but yet it's a reality that all of us pray. And in Jonah chapter 3, we find ourselves, when it talks about praying in the shadow of judgment. Oh. Praying, and, 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 and really, like, I have a picture here. This is, this is how the, the, the chapter 3 starts, is we've got this, this prophet washed up onto the shore. A, a fish has just vomited him, barfed him up there, and there he is. This is his life. He, he, he now, it's like he's been reborn. He has a new opportunity, a new lease at life. Chapter 2 of Jonah was sort of his prayer of, of, of how he turns to God and found him to, to hear him. Here now we find Jonah. What now will happen to Jonah? Well, just leave that picture up there because the reality is, if it was me or you in God's position and we had a guy like Jonah, we'd probably be writing him off right now. He's a loser. He is useless. He didn't do what I asked him to do. Why? You know, okay, I've, I've saved his life. Now let him go and just fade into obscurity. But what we find in chapter 3 is a surprising reality. Is that God actually speaks to him again. And actually in Jonah chapter 3, like Jonah 1, Jonah doesn't pray. He has had some change in his heart, but not a full change. And this is the reality. Is that sometimes, you know, we, we, we can come to God, but there's still stuff in our life that we have to work through. Things from your past, attitudes, you know, patterns of behavior, habits that you have to address as you walk in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And, and, and this is, of course, the Old Testament. Jonah has this relationship with God. He discovers his forgiveness. He's ended up on the shore, and God's inviting him back into partnership with him. But you and I probably would say, why, why waste your time? Let's find some new resumes. Let's, 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 let's interview some new candidates. But God speaks to Jonah in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Don't gloss over that. God is giving Jonah a second chance. God is allowing him another opportunity to respond to him and be used by him. And it's remarkable because you think he doesn't deserve it. It's a miracle. Sorry, let's go back. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry. It's, it's, yeah, there we go. I'm looking at the three that was threw me off. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God is speaking to him. And he says it just like he did in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah, I'm giving you a second chance. Same words are used. Get up, go. But the message changes. Instead of to, to preach because their evils come against me, here it says, give them the message that I'm going to tell you. 
And here's the truth of the matter. This is kind of a little side note here, but some of you are like, you know, what do I say to people that I work with? What do I say to my family that don't go to church? What do I say? What do I say? And God says, preach to them the message that I tell you. Don't get caught up in the arguments and debates and this and that. And, you know, people read the book of Jonah and say, how could a guy get swallowed by a fish? And, you know, all this. And you're missing the point of the story. The point of the story is there's this amazing God that still gives people chances even when they blow it. Preach them the message that I tell you. You will get in trouble when you make up your own message. <laughs> but when you take God's message, and I've been doing this almost 30 years. And when I was so young, I was like, I got nothing. To, to share it with anyone, because I'm, you know, 27, I'm starting to preach. But let me tell you, God's Word's got a lot of stuff, and I'm happy to give you that. And here I am now, you know, almost 30 years later, I'm like, I still got nothing. You know, it's like, Pastor Mike's great ideas for a happy life. I got nothing for you, but God's got everything for you. If you ever hear me preach, and it doesn't come from the Bible, you can come to me and say, Pastor Mike, what was that? And I'll be like, you know, and, you know that, that's, that's my time when I'm ready to quit, because I'm like, I got nothing, but God has everything for you. He said, given the message that I tell you. Perhaps Jonah might have been tempted to add his own little, you know, addendums to the message of God. But God said, look, I've got a message for him. Just give him that. Get up and go. And now we're waiting as the reader, wondering what's going to happen. Is he going to do the same thing he did last time, run away? Is he going to head to the, you know, to the, the opposite direction? Is he going to listen? Is he, how is he going to respond? And it says in verse 3, Jonah got up. And went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, I actually have a, a picture there. Sorry, Mickey, I'm messing with you guys there. But, you know, so, so, you know, here's a picture of the Middle East. You can see the Mediterranean Sea, Persian Gulf, Red Sea, Caspian. I mean, the Assyrian nation was a huge nation, powerful nation at the time. And he's going right into the center of the action, Nineveh. He's far away from his home down in Israel. And he's heading into this, like, go to that place. And you go to the, you know, the epicenter of all their, you know, power. And I want you to preach the message that I give for you to share to them. And, and he gets up and he goes. It's I mean, we're talking 500 miles probably from Israel, wherever he landed on the coast there into, into Nineveh. And he is obeying the Lord. Let's go back to that verse. You see that? He set out, got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. He's not the same guy. He may not understand it. He may not like it, but he does it. Because this is what God has told him to do. He's learned his lesson. I hope you've learned your lessons when you have blown it. Like we talked about last week, and you get back on track. You show that you've learned a lesson by not doing it again. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, one of my children, I'm not going to mention his name. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he would just take that toilet paper roll and doom, 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 you know, and this pile of toilet paper would, would on the floor. Ooh, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, don't do that, you know, and there was consequence, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then like the next day, doom, doom, you know, I'm like, why are you doing that? He said, I don't know why I'm doing it. You know, just so much, you know, you know, you've learned a lesson when you stop doing it and you do what you're supposed to do. Jonah gets up, goes to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. And it tells us in 3B there that, um, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three day walk. It's hard to translate that first part of that verse because it's like literally as Nineveh was a great city to God. And, you know, translators and interpreters are like, well, what, what does that really mean? And, it, you know, that, that it, was, it was a substantial city. 
It was a, a, a meaningful city. But more than that, that, the people that lived in Nineveh mattered to God. Like he, when, when there's a large group of people in one place, God is concerned for that because he, he created those people in his image and, and they have value to him. And God, God cares for cities and for places where people live. To this. And it says, it's a three-day walk. Now they've done archaeological excavations and there was like the, the greater Nineveh area, like kind of like the GTA, you know, like there's Toronto City, but then there's this huge metropolis of, of you know, cities around Toronto, same as Vancouver, and, you know, even Edmonton has other, you know, little cities around. So, so Nineveh had this great area, and it, it could take three days to walk all around it, but then they've encountered, like, this small city within Nineveh, like, that was the, kind of the, the palace proper, and that wasn't as very, very big, so they're trying to, what does he mean by a three-day walk? It could be that this was in a diplomatic mission. That it would take three days to, to, to accomplish a diplomatic mission. The first day you'd arrive, you'd announce your intentions, you'd set up the meetings. The second day you'd, you'd have the meetings, and the third day you'd have the final, the final you know, ending of the meeting, and you'd leave. So it was kind of a three-day thing to have a diplomatic visit. Potentially, whatever the case may be, God is trying to communicate to us that this was a big job a big city, a lot of people involved. This wasn't a go in, you know, it wasn't going to Marshall, right, and standing at, you know, the post office and say, okay, everybody, you know, and everyone hears, you know, and the gossip spreads and, you know, or Blackfoot or something like that. Like this, this is a big city. I have a picture here. Um, this is an artist's rendition of ancient Nineveh. You can just imagine there's the, the river, the big buildings, temples, you know, palaces. I mean, this is not a small task. How is he going to preach to all those people? How is he going to get that message out? And that's the other possibility. Maybe it would take three, three days just to get into every quarter of the city and stand in the spot and let everyone know what, what the message was. And, you know, here he is. This is a big task. One little guy, one huge city. It feels like a drop in the bucket, like a, like a, a grain of sand on the, on the vast beach. Like, how is Jonah actually going to make a difference? Well, be, because it's not really Jonah. It's God's message. And it says in verse 4, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Five words in the Hebrew. It's, it is a short message. It's like, yeah, amen, preacher, you know, you know, go home, you know. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, did he preach more? I don't know, but that's all that's recorded for us. I mean, it was a, it was a succinct message. It was very clear, and that, that, was, that was all that, that he said. He's like, okay, guys, it's over for you. It's going to be destroyed. And he's proclaiming this message. Um, there was a day when churches like this would, get excited about, you know, preaching hell and brimstone kind of messages, or, yeah, you know, you're going to hell, you know, and, and that, you know, the, the reality is, is, is actually, like, those kind of messages are not happy messages, they're, they're actually very sad messages. Um, the challenge as a preacher is you have to talk about God's judgment, but most people don't want to hear that message. People ignore you for their whole life, and then someone near to them dies, and they show up at the funeral, and they want you to say good words. And I'm like, well, you can't ignore God your whole life and then expect him to, to pay attention to you when you die. It doesn't work that way. He's, he's giving you attention right now. If you choose not to listen to it, that's, that's your choice. And it just breaks my heart because I see 
these people and they just are enduring the funeral. They just want to get out of here. They don't want to hear the good news that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever dies but believes in me will live. And you're like, well, how does that work? Because there is spiritual life, eternal life after, after physical death. And I'm like, this is good news. And how many people I walk, watch walk out of this building or other places where I'm doing funerals and they just don't want to hear that. But they want me to say when they die that, yo, they're back in heaven with God and they're, you know, and, and so, you know, here it is. This is a pretty serious message. We don't like to have to share the message of judgment, but it's a reality. God holds us accountable for our sins. And it should just stop us and say, woo, you mean everything I've done? Yeah. Everything I've ever said? Yeah. All the history on all my devices? Yeah. Every business transaction and times when I kept the change and I shouldn't, I was over it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every time that I was greedy or jealous or envious or lustful, yeah, every time, yeah. Scary, isn't it? Forty days, Nineveh will be demolished. And you wonder what's going to happen. I mean... You know, we, we used to have little cartoons about this, or, you know, crazy-looking guys, you know, in the city with signs saying, the end is near, you know, the end is near, you know. And In fact, the, the very first month I was here, we were, I was at the back door there, and Julio and I were back there, and this guy came in, and he's like, I got a message for God, from God for you. And I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, that's interesting. And he's like, the end is near. And Julio and I kind of looked at each other and said, okay. And we, uh, we escorted him, you know, okay, well, see you later, you know. And uh, anyway, five years later, it's still near, I guess. Yes, I don't know, but uh, in 40 days, he's given us a timestamp. 40 days. 40 days. In Scripture, you'll find that term 40 shows up. Times of testing, uh, times of judgment. Um, Elijah, 40 days, you know, away, and Moses up on the mountain, and Jesus' temptation. But here it is. And the response is surprising. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Like, now, let me remind you. The Assyrians. Violent, brutal people. Um, You know, the, uh, you know, they're just, they were horrible. They, they were they intimidated. They devalued human life. They loved to, you know, and, and, they, and they would love to torture people, their prisoners and the people that resisted them and their strength. I mean, they were awful. They didn't care. You know, impale people on posts and leave piles of skulls outside of a city gate. You know, skin people alive. I mean, they were horrible, horrible, horrible people. And here they are suddenly believing God. And they stop eating, they, they put on sackcloth, and, and, and then they're humbling themselves. You're like, I can't believe this. I have a picture here. Here's one, here's one picture. I mean, you know, can you imagine? This is like a, a sanitized version. And maybe you have a second picture here. This is you know, kind of watercolor. There they are. You know, they're pouring ashes on themselves. They're crying. They're weeping. They realize that this could actually happen. And they believe God's word to be true, and, and they're responding in the best way they know how. Well, what, what else can we do? I guess we're going to die. We might as well just cry out to him in this moment. It's a surprising, surprising picture. But then the news gets up to the top. 
the main man in Nineveh is the king. He would be viewed as, as equal to the gods, as the, the ultimate powerhouse. And it says in verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, and issued a decree in Nineveh. Like, can you believe it? I mean, the, the king, the most powerful man, the guy who, who, who can do whatever he wants, there is no one holding him accountable. I mean, he could have been like, what are you doing? Quit that nonsense. Get your clothes back on. Get back to work. Forget this. This is, this is, this is not going to happen. No, it is going to happen. And he says, by order of the king, there's no person or animal. <sighs> Herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrong doing. The king is issuing a decree. And notice, see that in, in verse 8? Everyone must call out earnestly to God. It's ironic because in the period of Israel and Judah and the God's people, the Israelites, the Jews that knew better, many of their leaders were horrible leaders. They knew the truth but refused to walk in the truth. And here's a guy that doesn't know the truth and is trying to do the right thing in a bad situation. And he says, everybody, we got to pray. Let's pray to this God. Let's seek his face. Let's stop doing those things that we're doing. And that word wrongdoing is the word violence. It's literally the word Hamas. Surprise, surprise. We have to turn away from that. I have never in my life experienced this type of moral leadership from an elected official or a leader of a government. Never. But in honor of Remembrance Day, I do want to share a story. I've shared it before, but I'm going to share it again. In fact, I think I'm going to share it every Remembrance Day, just so you know, because I love this story. And because people are rewriting history, I have to share this story so that you can clarify the truth of this story as you tell your children and other people that you work with. It's the story of Dunkirk. For Winston Churchill, the new prime minister, it all began with an early phone call on May 15th that roused him from sleep. We've been defeated, said the French premier, Paul Renault. We are beaten. Churchill was well aware of the Nazi advance. Days earlier, Adolf Hitler's army had taken Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg, with Denmark and Norway already in his grip. England had sent more than 200,000 troops to France and Belgium, all for nothing it now seemed. Surely it can't have happened so soon, the stunned Churchill said. The front is broken, Renault said. The Nazis are pouring through in great numbers. The Allies had severely miscalculated the path the Nazis would take. The Germans had swept south through the supposedly impenetrable Ardennes Forest, a region the Allies had barely bothered to defend. Now British and French troops found themselves surrounded in disarray. Their only possible escape was across the English Channel through Dunkirk, a city in northeast France. A mass evacu evacuation would require following thousands upon thousands of soldiers spread across hundreds of miles into one space while Nazis closed in with 1,800 tanks and 300 Stuka dive bombers. For days, Churchill resisted that escape plan. It seemed like a suicide mission. They'd be lucky to get 20,000 men home via the English Channel. 
let alone more than 300,000 Allied troops. But there was no other option. On May 23rd, Churchill met with the British monarch, King George VI, to brief him. Though a naval rescue operation were underway, pitifully few ships were ready to sail. The logistics of defending against the inevitable German air attack while ferrying the troops seemed impossible. Allied soldiers were scrambling to reach Dunkirk. They barely knew which direction to go. We must pray, King George VI said. This next Sunday, I'm calling for a national day of prayer. Famously non-religious, Churchill was surely not looking at prayer as the answer, but he could hardly refuse the king. On May 24th, King George VI addressed the nation, let us with one heart and soul humbly but confidently commit our cause to God and ask his aid that we may valiantly defend the right as it is given to us to see it. On May 26th at Westminster Abbey, the Archbishop of Canterbury called on God to protect the troops. Across Great Britain, tens of thousands of people responded to the king's call, uniting as never before. Cathedrals and churches, mosques and synagogues were packed to overflowing. At Westminster Cathedral, the line extended for blocks and hundreds kept vigil outside. The people didn't know exactly what they were praying, yet they prayed even so. Nothing like this has ever happened before was how one English newspaper described the scene. The following day, though, the German high command reported, the British army is encircled. Our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. The war, it appeared, was over for the Allies. Few would have argued otherwise. Soldiers were trying to get to Dunkirk. It was absolute chaos. Everywhere, the roads were filled with British and French soldiers, abandoned tanks and equipment littered across the countryside. Thousands of refugees marched with escaping troops, some driving cars, everyone fleeing in advance of the Germans. From out of the skies would come the Stukas, strafing everything in sight. The scene was horrific. But all was not as it appeared. Something happened that historians even decades later can't explain. With German tanks rumbling just 10 miles from Dunkirk, Hitler did the unthinkable. On May 24th, the day King George VI called the nation to pray, Hitler inexplicably halted the offensive. For nearly three days, as England knelt as one, those tanks remained grounded. Nothing moved. It was the exact window of time the British needed to form a defensive perimeter to temporarily fight back the Germans and establish a funnel for their troops to flow through to the English Channel. Then came something else. Rain and clouds. German planes bombed Dunkirk on three separate days, but each time. For days afterward, the city was enveloped by inclement weather, making any effective follow-up from the Nazis difficult. What's more, breeze seemed to collect smoke emitted from the German bombs and distribute it over the area the British were using to load men into boats. The Allied exodus went undetected for days. Meanwhile, word was spreading across England that the need for boats to cross the channel to Dunkirk for what purpose, no one was exactly sure. Almost any vessel would do. Rowboats, fishing trawlers, tugs, motorboats, hundreds of would-be skippers responded. Some had never been out of sight of land before. Many of the crafts lacked compasses. None of them were armed. The English Channel is notoriously rough, choppy. No place for novice seamen. But once again, something peculiar happened. The water... The water was like that of a bathtub. With barely a ripple to disturb the journey, no one had ever seen anything like it. There were so many boats that in places the waters resembled a freeway at rush hour. In the first five days of the rescue mission, more than 100,000 soldiers were evacuated. 
That still left more than 200,000 men, tens of thousands desperately fighting to hold the perimeter. They'd be the last to go. By the end, 338,000 soldiers had made it safely across the English Channel. Thanks to the effort of about 850 little ships, there was a feeling of determination, not surrender, deliverance by a divine hand. It was exactly what the British soldiers and civilians needed to forge ahead, especially so early in the war. On June 4th, Churchill went to the House of Commons to deliver the news. We shall fight on the beaches, he thundered. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. The Prime Minister called it a miracle, a word he was not known to often use. There seemed no other word to describe it, no. Not just one, but a whole series of miracles. Without any one of them, the entire operation would have failed. Hitler halting the Blitzkrieg, the thick protective cloud cover, the English Channel growing still, the hundreds of tiny boats appearing seemingly out of nowhere. What turned the tide? For the king, there was no question. It was prayer. This king says, hey, guys, we got to pray. Call out earnestly to God. Turn from our wicked ways. And you notice verse 9, he ends his, 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 his um, uh, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? They don't know. They don't know. They don't have revelation. They don't have any history with this God. They don't have covenants with this God. They don't have, have a genealogy with this God. They just say, oh, we don't. all we can say is maybe this God is gracious. So who knows? The other option is, is imminent certain death. We believe this to be true. So let's just humble ourselves. Let's pray. Let's call out to him. Who knows? It was a bit of a gamble. But as we'll find out, it was a good gamble. And thankfully today, we don't have to gamble like that. We know exactly how God feels about these things because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not a question of who knows. What if I do enough good stuff or try hard enough? Or do? Jesus has settled it for us. We don't have to say who knows. We know for sure what, what, what it is. But here, they didn't have that revelation. He's like, I don't know, but maybe this God is gracious. Maybe he's merciful. Maybe he's compassionate. I don't know, but, but, but we can't continue to do the things we're doing. And they stopped doing it. And in verse 10, oh, sorry, I got a picture here. Let's look at that picture here. You know, here's the king with his dog in sackcloth. You know, there he is, rings on his fingers, crown on his head, but he's humbling himself. And in verse 10, it says this. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. He saw what they had done, he relented, and uh, maybe your translation said he changed his mind. That's not a good translation. But there's a sense that God has the prerogative, people respond to his revelation, to respond according to his character. And so he's just, but he's also loving. And that character is perfectly balanced. So if we respond to his justice with humility and repentance, he's, he's, he's able to, to offer mercy and grace. And so this is what's happening. God says, yeah. You guys responded the way I, I hoped you would, and so, so I don't need to do this anymore because now you've recognized me and you've acknowledged me and you've, you've stopped doing that horrific stuff. And he didn't do it. This perhaps 
the revival of Nineveh is the greatest miracle in the book. It's not the fish, it's not the storm, it's the fact that a bunch of wicked, violent people would stop and humble themselves, and then the, the greater miracle is here they're experiencing God's mercy. He doesn't do what he had threatened to do. And so I have a few lessons here. Uh, the first one is that God is the God of second chances. And, and you know, you could add to that third chances, fourth chances, fifth chance. God doesn't give up on us. You give up on yourself. Other people give up on you. I would have given up on Jonah, but God didn't give up on him. He, he, he sends him back into, in, into the place where, where he wanted him to be originally, and he gives him another chance. And some of you maybe think, is, is there any chance for me? And there is a chance. There is a second chance. There's a third chance. You can come back to God today and find him to be the God of second chances. The, the second lesson I would have is this, that God's word still speaks into our world. Let me give you an example. Uh, John 3, verses uh, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Is that not a message for our world? You know, you're worried about condemnation, you're worried about judgment. Jesus has taken care of that. Believe in him. And it is that simple. Of course, to believe in Jesus Christ means that you cease believing and trusting in whatever else you were believing in before that. If, if you're you know, looking at the horoscope every day online, and then, oh, I believe in Jesus, but you still go back to the, you're not, believing in Jesus, says, I, I don't believe that that directs my future. Jesus directs my future. And whatever other religious or, or you know, faith tradition you might come from, you, you, you step away from that in order to embrace Jesus Christ because you understand he is the eternal God and salvation comes through him and him alone. God's word still speaks into our world. And he wants to speak a fresh word into your life. And through you into the lives of those you work with, you live with, your family members that don't know, have a relationship with him, he wants to speak this message into our world. God loves the world. Why are we doing Christmas lights in our parking lot? Because people in Lloydminster drive around looking for something to do at Christmas. And they drive to this house over there by the Lutheran Church, and they drive to the park north of town, and they walk around because they're looking for something to do. So why wouldn't we jump in on that and point them to the truth that is Jesus Christ? Well, it's just an opportunity. It's just, it's just another way of, of trying to do that. God still speaks into our world. Number three, we choose how we respond to God's message. It's your choice. Um, there are people that don't believe you have choice, and I don't think that's biblical. I think the Bible would say, no, the Ninevites had a choice. Jonah had a choice. He saw what happened when he didn't do the right thing in the first thing. Now he's doing the right thing, and, 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 and you, you have a choice. You can reject it, or you can accept it. You can believe it. Uh, the fourth one is that God hears the prayer of the repentant heart. Uh, and, and to repent means to, to, to have a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Where you realize, yeah, what, what, I'm, what I'm doing is not right, and then you, you change your direction and, and you, you head out in a new direction based on, on, on that turning of, of your heart away from something towards something. And God hears the prayer of the repentant 
heart. This was, again, reiterated in, in that parable that Jesus taught of the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? There's that wicked, evil criminal, but God hears his prayer and justifies him, and the, the self-righteous Pharisee is not heard in that moment. See, God hears the prayer of the repentant heart. If you're really sorry for what you've done in your life, God offers you forgiveness today. He hears that prayer. If you are a believer but have just been ignoring God's word, doing your own rebellious thing, God will hear your repentant prayer. And number five, God responds with grace and mercy to those who come clean before him. And I, I, I said it that way just to kind of, like, you can't hide things from God. Hide them from everyone else. You, you live under pretense and in the world. That's the reality. All of us have masks and walls and, you know, in different places, different ways and different, different defense mechanisms. But you can't hide it from God. He, he sees through all of that. But he's willing to extend his grace and mercy to those that come clean before him. And this is what we pray for for our world, that people would turn to God. Can you imagine if all the money that was spent fighting was used to help families and kids and, and you know, just, you know, f- f- you know, grow food? You just imagine what we could do in our world. If, if, if we just wouldn't waste so much time or, you know, trying to, you know, capture carbon or whatever, you know, stupidity it is, you know, that, that seems to think we could change or control the climate or, I mean, if we just actually, you know, and, and stop you know, bullets and tanks and, you know, if we could just do this and, you know, God responds in grace and mercy and we're just looking for that, that, you know, we didn't pray for peace in our world. But for a moment, this town of Nineveh was changed. It was a real revival. And it came through repentance. If you don't know Jesus today, I'm inviting you to turn to him. And for those of you that know Jesus, I'm inviting you to pray for our nation, that we would turn, and for our countries and for our world, that we would turn back to God. That we would serve him, that we would point others to him, that we would, we would reflect his character in the way we treat one another and live in our world. Man, the world needs this today more than ever. But notice Jonah's not praying in this passage, but it's the, it's the wicked, evil people that are praying again. Chapter one, it's these sailors that don't know God, and at the end, they're, they're, they're turned to God. And here we are, same thing, violent, you know, criminal-like people are, are turning to God, and you're like, where is Jonah in all this? We'll find out next week where he is. Jonah has got some serious issues. But the humble and the repentant have discovered God's grace and mercy. And I hope you've discovered God's grace and mercy today. I hope you know what it means to be forgiven. I hope you know that the judgment was dealt with on the cross. That you don't have to, you know, head to, 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 to your grave someday wondering, did I make it? No, you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you made it. You're good. It makes the funeral a lot easier for me if I know that you've got that in your, you know, I'll be like, yeah, you know what, yeah, and, and none of you is perfect, none of me, I'm not perfect, but, but because Christ was perfect, I know it's good, it's dealt with, it's taken care of. So turn to Jesus Christ and realize that the judgment that is upon our sins fell upon Jesus, and by believing in him, that's, that punishment is removed. Would you believe in Jesus Christ today? Team, would you come up? We're going to close in in a closing song here.
You know, the area where Nineveh is is still a, a, a horrific area of the world. There's lots of violence and stuff going on there. But even, even in that midst, like Iran, Iraq, there are little pockets where God is doing things with people. People are turning to Christ in, in these places in, in, in remarkable and miraculous ways. And we need to, to keep praying that God could break through our hardened hearts, and that we could experience his grace and his mercy and his love. So would you pray with me as we close? Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this revival, and we pray that you would visit our country in this way, our city, our provinces. Lord, how we need you. Forgive us for turning away from you. Forgive us for, for our, our selfish pride and, and our, our independence, Lord. We recognize today that you are God, and we need you. Help us to share that with our country, with our city, with our family, with our friends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with the team as we, as we sing together?